On Saturday, May 4th, 2019, we lost a hero of the Christian faith, Rachel Held Evans. I'm lucky enough to have called Rachel a friend and to have known her personally. And um, I found out about her passing on my way to the Los Angeles International Airport. And uh, that that was a tough flight. And in the days that have passed since we lost her, there have been some beautiful and moving tributes Um, really, really beautiful tributes. And I don't know if I have the talent, and I definitely know I don't have the emotional capacity to create a tribute worthy of who Rachel was. Um, Although if you'd like to read some of those tributes, I'll put them in the show notes this week on AskScienceMike.com. But I have this sense as I watch people mourn um, online, that Rachel meant a lot to so many people, but a relatively small number of us had the opportunity to know her personally. Um, And so my offering this week would just be to tell you a few stories of what it was like to know Rachel Held Evans. And if that's helpful for you as you process your grief and your sense of loss, then um, this, this episode is for you. Um, if that, if that makes you more upset to hear that, um, just stop this episode. Or if you don't know who Rachel is, um, now's a great opportunity to go back and read through her immense catalog of work because Rachel was a profound generational voice for Christianity. I know of no one who did more to fight for equality and inclusion for all people in the Christian tradition and in society at large than Rachel. But because she was so brilliant and because she was so witty and because she was so effective at making a point, it seems like many people are left with the notion that she was some kind of warrior, and I supposed in some sense that she was. But my relationship and my experience with Rachel was not as a warrior, but as a kind, thoughtful, and gentle friend. I want you to know what it was like to know her, because I was lucky enough to know Rachel, and I adore her. (laughs) I don't hold anyone in higher esteem than I hold Rachel. And like so many of you, I started as a fan of Rachel. And I mean a total, over-the-top, borderline, inappropriate level of interest fan. Before I ever met or talked to Rachel, I'd read all of her blog posts. I'd read every word she'd put into print. I'd read most, if not all, of her tweets. I looked at all of her social media. I subscribed to her email list. Rachel was so important to me because 
when I found Rachel, I was trying to figure out what kind of a faith I had. I was a former atheist trying to figure out if my spirituality included Jesus at all, if the Bible would play any role in my ongoing spiritual formation. That's when I found Rachel, like many of you. And I'm somewhat ashamed to say that Rachel was the first public woman to be influential in how I understand theology. What I mean is I had personal teachers in my life who were women, but a tweet from Rachel made me realize how white and how male my theological bookshelf was. I'd never noticed before that. It was because of Rachel that I started to read more books written by women and women of color and people of color and LGBTQ people and indigenous people. Every movement I made in my personal understanding and my personal study towards inclusion was initiated by learning from Rachel. Like you, as someone who followed her work not as someone who knew her personally. But then we started the liturgist, my friend, Michael Gunger and I. And our original vision for the liturgist was a large collective of people contributing. And we had several meetings starting out to to try to talk to people about what we could do. And uh, very few people... And by very few, I mean no people other than Michael and I were willing to try to do this weird thing, to try to make resources around spirituality that didn't require specific theological beliefs. And I recommended to Michael that we reach out to Rachel Held Evans, which uh, I didn't know if that was possible or not. I didn't know anything about the media industry, Christian or otherwise. I didn't know how we would reach out to Rachel. Uh, But Michael was able to, and she agreed to talk to us on the phone. And that would have been in early 2014. And I just have to tell you, I was so nervous that I was mortified to be on that call. As so often happens, Michael had to act as my emissary. It's very funny to me that Michael, a a self-professed and self-described introvert, so often has to act as our public face because I get so incredibly shy and as we were on the phone talking and i could hear rachel's voice it was so surreal i could not believe that i was talking to rachel held evans and so when it became my turn to say something on the call i breathlessly and rapidly described how much rachel's work meant to me so breathlessly And so rapidly that what I said was completely unintelligible. (laughs) And so there was like a long silence uh, after, I don't know if it was 20 seconds or five minutes, honestly. Uh, And then there was about a, a five count silence. And Rachel said, I think there might be something wrong with the connection because I didn't get any of that. (laughs) And uh, I took a deep breath. And I said, oh, sorry, I was just saying that your work has meant a lot to me. And so we talked about what we were trying to do, and Rachel uh, was immediately supportive. 
and the first person to ever say yes to contributing something to the work of the liturgist. Rachel was the first person to say yes. That piece uh, was uh, released in our our second uh, liturgy release called Garden. That was around Easter in 2014. And her piece was uh, the Saturday piece, Holy Saturday, when in the Christian tradition we understand Christ to be in the tomb and hope to be lost. And she uh, recorded a vocal version of a piece she'd already written for the doubters. And it was, oh, it was beautiful. It was really beautiful. But what struck me about working with Rachel immediately was just how down-to-earth and low-key she was. I was. It was so obvious she did no way saw herself as a celebrity. She uh, not only did not demand deference, she was opposed to it. <laughs> and I have a very shy and awkward manner sometimes interpersonally, especially when I respect people. And Rachel took on the work of creating a friendship with me. Later that year in November, uh, Rachel was going to be speaking at a conference in a small town in North Georgia, and it happened that Jenny and I were going to be vacationing there at the same time. So I reached out to Rachel and said, I'd love to meet you. Uh, and she said, yeah, why don't you come up to this uh, conference? And I mean, it was a small, really small uh, church conference. And so we did. We drove up to this little retreat center and sat in a very small room as Rachel taught, uh, read from a manuscript a lot, and then, and then shared some thoughts and answered some questions. And Rachel asked me how my work was going. In other words, Science Mike, right? At this point, I was still mostly an advertising person. I had my own very small blog, uh, but my blog was mainly a way to facilitate lunch dates with people. I, I, I really cared about meeting with people one-on-one. -on -one. So if they had a, a thing they were afraid to tell anyone in their faith, they could tell me, and I didn't know what to do about it. I just wanted them to feel like they weren't alone. I told Rachel that's kind of what I was about, and she was asking me what, you know, how I handle speaking events, and I told her uh, people just emailed me, and I go. <laughs> she asked me, what I charge, and I said, you know, um, I usually take unpaid vacation days, so I usually just ask for uh, a day's salary plus travel. And she said that that was very beautiful. But that I needed to charge enough, at least, to be able to take care of my family and the time it took to prepare to give a talk. And she asked who represented me, and I didn't even know what that meant. So she connected me with Jim Chafee, who represented her in speaking. And uh, Jim managed my speaking career for many years and is a dear friend. And she talked to me about books and book writing and really mentored me. And didn't just mentor me, offered her connections and her influence 
in a way that helped my platform, as it were, get off the ground. And she did that for so many people. Mostly women, mostly people of color, mostly queer people. And Rachel's intense advocacy for marginalized people has led some people to say she was anti-man or anti-white, but I'm a white man, and Rachel helped platform me. I don't know anyone who so effectively helps so many voices rise into public dialogue. I don't know anyone who has helped so many voices. Because of Rachel's example, I've tried to be a person who lifts and elevates other voices, and it takes more than willingness. It takes skill. (laughs) I don't know how she did it. She knew, because of her brilliance and her way with people, how to get the right people to pay attention, the right editors and agents and publishers and speaking agents. She could activate networks in a way that was totally counter to her personality. You would associate that that kind of networking skill with someone who is far less genuine and honest and humble than Rachel. I mean, think about how many voices out there. I think about how many voices who've changed the way I see the world, who found their way into public dialogue because of Rachel. And I'm one of them. So we had some wonderful conversations that weekend. I got to meet Dan, her husband, for the first time. Oh, man, and Dan is wonderful. Dan is wonderful. He's a fellow nerd, really into code and development, but thoughtful and kind. And I was struck with how their marriage together modeled something important. Rachel and Dan demonstrated what egalitarian marriage could look like, what a new script for a husband and a wife could be, free of predetermined gender roles. And instead, two people working together in mutual support, respect, affection, and admiration towards not just living life, but living life well, and to not just loving each other, but loving others well. We had such a good uh, interaction together that Rachel ended up hiring Jenny, my wife, as her assistant. And I can't speak for Jenny, but I do know from what Jenny has told me that working with Rachel meant a lot to her. That in some way, she got to feel a part of the world-changing work that Rachel did. And it's hard to say did in a past tense there. So Rachel was the first yes the liturgist ever had, and she started contributing before we had a podcast at all to that liturgy called Garden. 
but her first podcast appearance was episode number four. That's pretty early. She was the second guest we ever had on the podcast. Pete Enns was the first. And Michael and I commented after recording that episode how much fun we had talking with Rachel. How naturally and easily the conversation unfolded. And what profound insights surfaced because Rachel was involved. With considerable respect to everyone else who's ever appeared on the Liturgist podcast, I will confess that Rachel was my favorite guest of all time. Because there are very few people that both Michael and I find such a natural and easy conversation with. She was just so bright, so brilliant, and yet so compassionate at a time when I felt drawn towards cynicism, towards anger, towards perhaps a desire to just throw out the whole Christian thing. Rachel showed me what Jesus looked like. Starting in episode four, and then she was on every single season of the Liturgist podcast after that, and we'd already started talking about how she'd be involved in season five. She told us that she was finally open to being a more regular contributor. You've got to know that Michael and I, the first person that we asked to co-host the Liturgist podcast with us was Rachel. And every time we talked to her, we'd say, are you ready to come co-host the podcast yet? And she told us that she was ready to start being on there more regularly, that she appreciated the work that we do. And she loved meeting liturgists at her events who would talk to her about things she'd said on the air with us. Oh gosh, I love her. The last time that I was with Rachel in person was at her conference Evolving Faith last year. She and Sarah Bessie put that on. And they really tried to show what an inclusive, truly inclusive gathering of Christians could look like. I've never seen a lineup for any event like that one. I've never been to an event so powerful. Sarah and Rachel hosted and deferred. They found powerful, beautiful voices, both within and on the periphery of the Christian tradition and highlighted them. I always get really embarrassed when people introduce me before I speak. I'm, I'm not entirely sure why, although I'm learning, but I, I experience a really severe sense of embarrassment, even shame, when people read from my bio or introduce me as popular or liked or whatever. 
That's my work to do. But I only tell you that because I remember when Rachel introduced me at Evolving Faith that I did not feel ashamed. I felt special and loved. For some reason, Rachel's affection didn't bring out the shame or the fear of rejection that most people's affection does. And I think it's because she was so steadfast, so non-coercive. Rachel never wanted anything from you. For those of us with communication challenges, if you didn't call or text for a long time, that was fine. But she was happy to hear from you when you did. Walking up on that stage after Rachel introduced me was the high point of the whole science mic thing for me. I felt like a supporting player at a conference headlined by Jeff Chu and Austin Channing Brown. And I was just so happy to be included among that number. At the end of Evolving Faith, we uh, shared communion with all the attendees and those of us who had spoken or shared from the platform, served communion. And Rachel and our friend Cindy and I served together. And if you know me, you know the major role that the table plays in my faith. That the reason I'm Science Mike and the reason I'm a Christian is because my friend Rob Bell once held a piece of bread to me and said, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And so I view it as actually the most sacred, important, and holy thing that I do is offering the same to others, especially those who have been told they're not allowed to have it. Atheists, pagans, spiritually ambiguous folks, queer people, marginalized people. That family meal at the table of Christ. So I was secretly beaming with pride that one of the people in my life who I have most respected and loved and admired was standing with me to share the good gift. And that night, we were all gathered in a little conference room, eating pizza. And there was this amazing community with all kinds of sexualities and gender identities and ethnic and racial presentations and identities led by women. (laughs) And I realized that Rachel had placed me into a community that I'd dreamed of 
but didn't imagine would ever exist in my lifetime. An open, inclusive, egalitarian Christian community. Many people, myself included, spend a lot of energy describing what the church should be. But very few of us actually start to build it. What I will remember most about Rachel is not her tweets or her blog posts or even her books. What I will remember about Rachel was her friendship and her unwavering commitment to building real community in flesh and in blood. I will miss Rachel for the rest of my life. But thanks to her, I also hold out as hope that one day I might see her again. Rachel, I love you. I miss you. And don't worry, there's a lot of us here for Dan and your wonderful children.